Well, good morning. Looking forward to sharing some time with you. Uh, you all were, most of you, I think, were in the service this morning. Tell me the five points. Ooh, anybody write them down? Perfect. Excellent. Uh, when you get an opportunity to hear someone uh, with as much experience as uh, Pastor Jim, it's worth jotting some notes down and uh, looking forward to that. So uh, one of my favorite uh, memories of a family, our, our, uh, my wife and I, as our kids were growing up, we, uh, as we interacted with people who perhaps had less than we did, and we didn't have a lot, but we did what we could, um, we tries, tried to find a family who had either uh, very little to offer for Christmas gifts for their, for their kids or some other difficult circumstance, and we would make sure they had presents. And uh, it was just something, we, we, it was like a, a, a present from Jesus to them. And our kids still remember that and, and thought that was a really neat thing to do. So as you guys grow up and have an opportunity, make sure that you uh, look for opportunities to do service in the name of Christ. Another thing, uh, I've got some cards here. They're about 40 years old, at least. Um, and it's called, Who Am I and What Am I? And it's just a little game. Thought we'd do a couple minutes. And let's see how sharp you guys are. I think we'll do all right. So they're either Old Testament and New Testament. Who am I or what am I? This is a who am I. I was an apostle of Jesus. You know, there's four clues. And they get easier as you go and hope, help you find this, okay? And if you think, well, okay, an apostle of Jesus. Well, let's see, who comes to mind? Anybody? Okay, keep going. Okay, I heard, I heard Matthew. Uh, the second clue would have been, after he called me, I had him uh, come to a dinner. Of course, Matthew had a dinner after he uh, met Jesus and, and accepted his call. Uh, again, who am, I, who am I? New Testament. I was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Simon of Cyrene. Exactly. You guys are sharp. Okay. What am I? I am a pleasant color to behold. A pleasant color. Just think, okay, what, what color is in the Bible? Uh, Moses once took my color for a veil for the tabernacle. Purple. Very good. Uh, this is a who am I? Old Testament. My father's name was Terah, and he was 70 years old when I was born. Say it loud, loud. Abraham. Abraham. Okay. And that, uh, let's see. Then, what am I? Uh, Old Testament. I have been around this world a long time. In fact, since Adam. I'm sorry. I... Okay, I, well, let's do the second clue. One of my descendants fastened on Peter's hand, excuse me, Paul's hand, when he was on Malta. A snake, yeah, exactly, a serpent. Uh, let's see, what am I? And uh, though I am not without historical meaning, I certainly led into a salty trap. Mm -hmm. 
though I am not without historical meaning, I certainly led into a salty trap. Uh, second clue, I am a long and slender body dividing Palestine. No, long and slender. Well, don't ask, guess. <laughs> which, which river divides Palestine? Pardon? Which river? And, and you're right, Euphrates is a river, but... Okay, let me give you another one. Uh, my, <laughs> my substance comes from the Sea of Galilee and ends up in the Black Sea, the Jordan River. Okay, all right, that's enough of that. We have a packet about that thick of these things, and it's kind of fun to pull them out once in a while. All right, if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew... And if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure there's one somewhere in the room. And we're going to be in chapters 21 and 22 uh, this week and next. And just as I get started here, I've got a few verses, sections of Scripture that I'd like to have volunteers read. Anybody willing to do that? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll get this whole table figured out here. One more? All right. All right, we got all taken care of at one table. Cool. How many of you, when you're growing up, or perhaps if you're still living at home, have, a, have tabletop books? You know what a tabletop book is? You have a coffee table, and usually it's a larger book. Maybe it's a picture book, or uh, maybe it's about some trip you want to make or a trip that somebody has made. Anybody? No tabletop stuff? I got a couple? Okay. And they're always kind of cool uh, because you can see pictures, read about dialogue, and, and it's kind of fun. Uh, I think uh, Austin has a tabletop book, and it's related to uh, all the different books in the Bible. It's kind of uh, fascinating to look through that. But there's another series of books that you're going to find if you go looking, and it's called A Day in the Life of. A Day in the Life of. Um, you can find them about an astronaut, about a veterinarian. You can find it about a nurse, a police officer, a day in the life of the UPS guy. Uh, day in the life of sharks, birds, bears. There's even a book about the day in the life of President Kennedy. Um, or ancient Rome, Japan, a day in the life of America, and on and on and on. And what they've done, particularly for the picture books, they have a number of photographers and, and uh, people go out and they catalog what's happening in this place on any one given day and then they put this all together in a book. Well, in our Bible, in Matthew, there's a section that gives a great deal of something that happened on one particular day. And we're gonna look at some of that today and next week. So I'm gonna call this A Day in the Life of Jesus. And it happens to be a Tuesday, the Tuesday before his arrest and crucifixion. Many of the harmonies, uh, including one that I was particularly looking at, 
by A.T. Robinson called A Harmony of the Gospels, goes from Matthew 21, 18, all the way to Matthew 26, I believe it's 13 or 16. And all of this takes place on one particular day. Just, it's well recorded for that particular day and really a fascinating look. Uh, some of the things that take place uh, in the morning as Jesus is walking back into Jerusalem, he encounters a fig tree and there's a story about the, the barren fig tree. Then he has a, um, a confrontation in the temple with the authorities about whether or not he has the right to be able to teach. Then he tells three parables, parables of the, parables of the two sons, parable of the landowner, parable of the marriage feast. Uh, and then he's challenged about whether or not it's appropriate to give tribute to Caesar. And then there's three questions. They question him uh, a couple times, and then he questions the Pharisees. Um, and then he goes into a, a, a rather long conversation or, or judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. And that goes on for uh, most of uh, chapter 23. Then he, after they leave the temple, we are uh, shown a, a conversation that he and his disciples had about the end times. And that covers most of the uh, 25. Uh, in that section, he talks about parables of the ten virgins, about the talents, and he has a, a rather a long portion relating to judgment. Then, toward the end, uh, beginning of 26, at the end of the day, there is, uh, uh, there is that meal uh, where he has uh, the ointment put on him. And about the same time, we're told that the leaders are gathering to come up with a plan to kill Jesus. And as a result of the ointment uh, that was put on Jesus that was very costly, uh, for some reason, Judas decided he, he wanted to betray Jesus. And, and so this section, this one day, ends with uh, Judas making that bargain. So if you, if you follow that whole track, this is all taking place on one day. Um, so this is only one day of Jesus' life, and most likely not even a complete accounting of everything that took place that was said or done. Um, if you think about uh, John 20, uh, it says this, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's also uh, in John 21, it says, and there are also many of the things which Jesus did, which if they were all written down in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself would contain the books that could be written. So I'm starting with uh, chapter 21, and we're just going to look at uh, just the beginning of that Tuesday, Tuesday morning. And I'm just going to hit a couple high points on um, the first couple items, <clears throat> and, and then we're going to spend uh, some time looking uh, mostly at the parable of the landowner this morning. But uh, in 2118... It starts out saying, Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. 
And seeing a lone fig tree alongside the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit on you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> and so the, the fig tree as a parable, uh, think about it this way. Um, the fig tree was something that bears fruit twice a year, but the leaves gave the impression that there was going to be fruit on it. Going to the tree, he found no fruit. And this is really a picture of the... Uh, of the, the nation of Israel. Uh, if you do some study independently, you'll find that the fig tree is often mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's one of those um, images that uh, is used in synonymous with, uh, with Israel. And so th we have a promise of fruit, but no production. And Jesus, as he came to Jerusalem, began to see that here we have a nation of people that are called by God to be light to the world, and yet they were not. So they were not producing the fruit that God had intended. So Jesus was using a material, earthly example to illustrate the spiritual judgment, a spiritual principle. Uh, in uh, Revelation 2, 5, uh, Jesus is referring to the church in Ephesus. And... In Revelation 2, 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Same kind of thing. For those people in that church, they had lost their first love, and Jesus uh, is telling them in Revelation, if you don't repent and change, I'll remove your witness. And here with the barren fig tree, Jesus had uh, said, there's a promise, but no production. Um, Jesus then talks about prayer, talks about prayer and faith, that with all things, uh, God is, with all things, um, it is possible with God. Um, Matthew 21, 23 then says, he entered the temple, and so we're going from that path, that uh, road, into the temple itself. And, uh, and he was involved with some activity there. The chief priests and the elders and the people came to him while he was teaching. So as he went into the temple, he gathered, the people gathered around him. He was a, a person they had heard about and knew. And so he had a chance to uh, begin to teach these folks. And as he was teaching the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And, uh, and of course, they came in a cynical way. They weren't asking because they really wanted to know. They were just challenging his, his right to be able to do that. And, uh, and so in verses 21 to 23, excuse me, 23 to 27 in uh, chapter 21, he then has that uh, uh, choice. Well, am I going to tell him who uh, gave me the authority and, and why it, or 
let's, uh, let's see what they have to say. And what does, he, what does he say to them at that point? Remember? He asked them a question. What's the question? He says, John's baptism, was it from man or was it from heaven? This message. Well, who, you have to know, in context, who's John the Baptist? What was his message? All right, he, he's saying the Messiah is coming. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what, is, what are the people, what was he calling people to do? Repent, believe, be baptized. Uh, the Pharisees and, and the ruling uh, religious people rejected John. They rejected his message because they, didn't, they just didn't believe the, uh, his message. The people, however, felt that he was a prophet. And uh, so what Jesus is saying, uh, it, by challenging them, by saying, well, was John's message from heaven or was it from man? Um, John the Baptist was rejected by those leaders. Uh, John had pointed to Jesus as the one to come, the Messiah. So their rejection of Jesus showed that they had disbelief in John's message. And Jesus knew that if they would not acknowledge John's message and claim, neither would they accept Jesus uh, as a Messiah. Um, so, again, moving away from that particular story he wasn't going to tell them because they refused to even acknowledge that john was in fact a prophet sent by god so then there's a parable that he shares with them uh, beginning in verse 28 talks about the parable of the two sons anybody familiar with this one yes what basically happened okay well you're thinking you're thinking of the uh, prodigal son right Okay, this is the two sons. Thought I saw, yes. Very good. Uh, let me ask you, did either son, were either son really a, uh, an upstanding person in, in their whole thing? One said, yeah, I'll do it, and then didn't. I've, have anybody ever done that and say, oh, I'll go do this, but just to say, just to get out of it underneath, oh, okay, and then I find something else to do. The other one said, nope, I'm not going to do it, and then I said, I really should have, and he went ahead and did it. The question was, which son actually did the will of his father? Was it the one who, yes, I will, or the one who said, no, I won't, but then changed his mind? And what was the answer? The one actually did the work, exactly. Um, Jesus makes a really interesting point here. And again, not that either of these sons were, were ideal, but the point he's making relates back to John again. And he says, truly, I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots 
will get into the kingdom of God before you. Wow, what a statement. Let's say the worst of the worst as far as their society was concerned. Uh, they would get in? Well, how does that work? Before the religious leaders? He says in verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even uh, afterwards have any remorse and believe in John's message. So again, he's making this comparison to their disbelief of John who was saying that the Messiah was here. Then in the, the we're going to spend most of the time, uh, the rest of the time this morning, um, and I'm not even sure what time we're supposed to close up. What, 11.45-ish? I'm sorry? About? Okay, all right. Parable of the landowner. Um, and I, I did a little looking at a couple different uh, commentaries, but I kind of focused on uh, uh, Barclay's catalog, uh, commentary on this. And Barclay has uh, some interesting comments. I'm just going to share some of those with you. But I'd like to read first the, the, the parable in its entirety, uh, and then we'll start talk about it a little bit. Beginning in verse 33 of chapter 21. And again, this is all taking place in the temple with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, uh, and anybody else who was standing around that Jesus had been teaching before he was interrupted. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So there's the, there's the setting. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive its produce. And the vine growers took the slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterward, he said, I will send my son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Then the, the people, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, answered, and he said, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent the vineyard out to vine growers who will pay him in the, the proceeds in the proper season. But let's take a look at some of these things. First of all, Barclay in his commentary says this, in interpreting a parable, it is normally the first principle that every parable has one point and that the details are not stressed. Normally to try to find the meaning in every single detail is to make the mistake of treating the parable as an allegory. But in this case, it is different. In this parable, the details do have a meaning and the chief priests and the Pharisees well knew what Jesus was meaning this parable to say about them, end quote. Um, pretty amazing. 
pretty amazing that they're going to uh, be that way for this. And, and Barclay goes on to say, again, it would be easy for those who heard this parable to make the necessary identifications. Before they treat it in detail, before we treat it in detail, let us identify these, uh, these different aspects. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, uh, who, as it were, had charge, excuse me, I said that wrong, the cultivators or, or the uh, vine growers are the religious leaders of Israel, who, as it were, had charge of the welfare of the nation. The messengers or slaves are those who were sent successively, are the prophets sent by God, and so often were rejected and some were killed. Uh, the son who came at last is none other than Jesus himself. Here is a vivid story. Jesus set out at one and the same time the history and the doom of Israel, end quote. So let's look at uh, the vineyard and its owner. Uh, I passed out some verses to the table over there. Isaiah chapter 5. Who's got that uh, section? You want to go ahead and read that for us? Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is compared to a, a vine, a vineyard. And uh, over and over again, we see the, the, the fact that God took great care in placing them where he did, uh, providing for them a, a, a country that was fruitful, that was pleasant, that was strategic, and, and he gave them a task to do. Uh, and what was just read in Isaiah talks about how they had failed to produce what they were expected to do. Um, another passage is Psalm 80, um, beginning in verse 8. Who's got that? Here again is just a brief history of what's happened since God took them out of Egypt and put them into the promised land. 
Uh, it talks about he clearing the ground, taking the nations out and giving them a fruitful land. Uh, they had houses they didn't build. They had vineyards they didn't plant. They had all these gifts that were given to them. And it seems like the more they had, the less they appreciated it. Um, he, God, then in judgment began to break down the protections that he had placed on them. And, uh, and, and so they were taken into captivity eventually. Um, quite an amazing thought. Hosea, uh, short verses, a couple verses from Hosea. Who's got that? Hosea 10. God had planted them uh, in, a, in a very precious and unique place. And amazingly enough, the more produce they received, the less they were thankful to the Lord. Um, the more fruit, the more altars he made. Not altars to God, but altars to false idols. The richer the land the better he made the sacred pillars. Again, the, the more they had, the less they worshipped God. And, uh, and so he began to break down those things and destroy those sacred pillars. Um, last verse for right now, uh, uh, Isaiah 27, who's got those verses? This is a promise to Israel for the end times. This is a future promise that they will um, be that fruitful vineyard again. God is going to give them uh, this promise, keep this promise. Um, pretty amazing. Um, he'll guard it day and night. They take root, blossom and sprout, and the whole world will be filled with the fruit. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So the vineyard is associated with Israel. And uh, so who's the owner? God. Yeah, okay. The, uh, the passage reads and, uh, that he built all these things, and it says, and then he went away on a journey. He went away on a journey. Is, is God the owner? Is he an absentee owner? Or does he seem far away? What do you think? Yeah, for some reason they, they struggled with that. Uh, some would say, yes, you know, he does seem far away. I mean, if you read through the Old Testament and, and over and over again, it's, it's, it's difficult for them to get uh, full comprehension. So as I say, some say, yes, God's absent, he's hands off, mankind is on his own, God is irrelevant. Uh, but look at some verses here. I'll show you uh, some of the thoughts like that. Job 22 says, uh, What does God know? How does he judge through thick darkness? Psalm 10 says, The sinner says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. 
he will never see it. Um, Psalm 42 says, uh, they say to me all day long, where is your God? In fact, in that psalm it says twice, where is your God? Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, finish the verse for me, there is no God. Psalm 94, they say, the Lord does not see, nor the God of Jacob pay heed. Now, Psalm 115 says, why do the nations say, where now is their God? And Malachi 2 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, saying, where is the God of justice? So there are many skeptics, many people who do not believe that God is either sovereign or that he's one of many gods or that he just is, he spun up the world and went on a journey. Um, but that's not what God's word says about God. It says he is not far away, but he's near and he's present. So we want to understand this, that he is intimately involved in all aspects of our life, my life, and your life. Job 31 says, uh, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 73, for behold, those who are far from you will perish, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good, and I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 94 says, he who made the ear and the eye, does he not hear and see? The Lord knows the very thoughts of mankind. Psalm 119, uh, verse 151, says, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Psalm 45 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The Lord keeps all who love him. Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And a uh, couple more. Jeremiah 23, I am the Lord who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And finally here, Philippians 4, uh, verse 5 says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So when we say that the landowner went away on a journey, it's that he allowed his tenants to do the work that they were supposed to do to produce fruit. It wasn't that he wasn't there or absent. God, in this illustration, is very near and present at all times. But let me ask, you know, for yourself, as, as a believer, do you sometimes feel that God is somewhat distant? Be honest there are times when when that's the case what do you do when you begin to feel that anybody want to share how it is that when you start to feel that way what you do pray what else Keep, yep, absolutely. Keep reading. Uh, keep studying. Be diligent. Uh, you want to uh, have that habit 
of uh, asking God to speak to you through his word. What else can you do? Mm-hmm. Because God has, if I feel distance from God, it's not because God has moved. Right. It's because I have moved in some way. So it's trying to discern what that is. Sometimes that's readily apparent, maybe more so than others. Okay, it could be a, a, a sin that's a lot you've allowed to creep into your your daily routine or something. Uh, it could be that God is preparing you for uh, a test and and he's what you feel as darkness is actually uh, his closeness his shadow and you're going to be going through a trial perhaps but oftentimes we feel that at that time in that moment uh, that we feel abandoned but that's really not the case uh, he's he is near he is present and he it can be trusted so, praying, reading God's word, uh, self-examination. Uh, one thing that I, I would encourage you to do when you have someone like that or something like that, have a group of friends that you can uh, confidentially uh, have that intimate conversation. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, what have you been reading? Uh, how are you feeling? And, and if you're having a struggle, feel free to share with those people. Again, confidentiality is very important. And if they're the kind of people that uh, pray for you and pray with you, uh, those, are, those are important things too. All right, so let's look at the vine growers. Who are they? When I read Barclay's commentary, what did he say the, the vine growers or the tenants were? The religious leaders of Israel. They're intended to be the, the, the shepherds for this nation. Um, Who's got Malachi 2? You want to share that with us? Good. The again, this uh, condemnation of the leaders of Israel uh, shows that they were they were given a, a good beginning. 
and they they despised it, they changed it, they uh, degraded it, and uh, and there were consequences. T tucked in that is a really neat uh, little thought. Um, when you look, as you guys grow up and as you go from place to place, you're going to want to look for a pastor, a pastor that is going to be true to the word. Listen to what he says. He says, tr uh, what a pastor, I, I think what you should look for in, in a pastor and spiritual leaders. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That was true for the, prophet, or the priests at that time, but it's true today for those who are preaching the gospel. Find a man like that when you go looking for a church. Find that kind of man, and the Lord will bless you and that congregation that you're involved with. So that's what the vine growers are represented in this. The owners, uh, the, the owners' servants, I think we could pretty uh, quickly identify them as the, as the prophets of old. Um, Jesus uh, laments over Jerusalem about how they had treated the prophets. It says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent. How often I would have gathered your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And less than 70 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed, and there were several million people killed as he wiped them off that hill, off that, uh, that city. Um, so talk about true devil, uh, desolation. The owner's son. Who, did it, who does this parable picture as the owner's son? I hear whispers. Thank you. I'm an old man. Today is my 68th birthday. Can you believe that? <laughs> and I went... God, I wasn't going to mention that, but, you know, God is good, and, uh, and God is uh, uh, just a wonderful, um, yeah, he's, he's just given lots of wonderful gifts. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the, the, the owner's son is Jesus, and, uh, and represents all of the owner's um, possessions. He represents the vineyard um, owner's authority. And, uh, and he's obedient to his father's request to go and collect that produce. And so, yeah, my, my problem with my ears is just getting old age, but I'll uh, try and... One of these days I'll get the hearing aids. But anyway, so I'm going to use uh, Barclay's outline just for the, the last portion of this, just to kind of walk through this a little bit. Uh, he talks about much about God, much about men and women, and much about Jesus as far as the privilege and responsibility that these folks had. Um, and first of all, it tells us much about God. It tells us that God's trust is in men and women. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, he gave the garden and the responsibility to, um, 
to till it, to care for it, and, and that was what was expected. They were going to be having families and filling the earth, and it was going to be, that was the way God designed it. Uh, sin entered in, but uh, God still trusts men and women to do their job. So every task we receive is a task given to us by God. The purpose of a vineyard was to produce good fruit. Uh, if you think about uh, Ephesians 2.10, somebody want to open up Ephesians real quick and read Ephesians 2.10? Go ahead. Okay. How about Philippians 1.6? Philippians 1.6. Okay. And finally over at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 has uh, verses 21 and 20 and 21, excuse me. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So again, the vineyard is to produce good fruits, and we should always desire to make him famous by what we do. God planted the vineyard, built the wall, made the wine press. He expected good management. And that's what was expected. Uh, Psalm 115, 16 says, The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Think about that. He created everything and he gave us this world to manage. And let's face it, we haven't done a great job. But someday that will all be taken care of as well. Uh, it also tells us about God's patience. Uh, God sent messenger after messenger, the Old Testament prophets. The vengeance was not immediate. He gave them time for repentance. Uh, Numbers 14 and Exodus uh, 34 kind of have the same, same wording, but I'm just going to read from Exodus 34. It said, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, as he, Moses, called on the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So there's grace and mercy and justice for those who don't believe and submit. So God bears with sinners calling for repentance. Says, Come to me, follow me, believe in me, uh, place your faith in me. Uh, we could look at uh, Romans or 1 Peter where he uh, calls us to repentance. Um, it also tells us about the judgment. Um, Matthew uh, 23 uh, 29 has a, a long, it's a long passage. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but he starts saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
And he goes on to talk about how they, uh, they say, well, if the people had been alive, if we had been alive, we wouldn't have persecuted them. And he says, no, that's not the case. Um, he says, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and, and you're going to kill them as well. And ultimately, he knew he, they were going to kill him. Um, Barclay, again, quoting him, says, in the, uh, in the end, the master of the vineyard took the vineyard from the cultivators and gave it to others. God's sternest judgment is when he takes out of our hands the task which he meant for us to do, end quote. Um, the faithless leaders of Israel, their task was taken from them and given to another. Um, secondly, it also tells us much, this parable does, about men and women. It tells us about human privilege. God provides everything needed to do his will. He not only gives a task, but he gives us the means by which we can accomplish it. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, secondly, it tells us about human freedom. Here are two truths that the Bible, in the Bible that seem impossible to justify. God is sovereign over everything, and humans have free will. And those are hard to justify uh, in our minds. But there's verses in Romans 6, uh, Galatians 5, and 1 Peter 2 that help us understand that both are true. Yes, we, we do serve a God who is sovereign in everything, but he allows us to make choices. And those choices determine reward or lack of reward for the believers. It also tells us about human accountability. Uh, in uh, Matthew 25, there's the parable of the talents and, and what we do with those things. So everything has a day of reckoning. Uh, and it also tells us the deliberateness of sin. Um, Barclay wrote, the cultivator carried out a deliberate policy of rebellion and disobedience toward the master. Sin is the deliberate uh, opposite to God. It is the taking of our own way when we know quite well what the way of God is, end quote. Um, there's a, a, go back to Psalm, excuse me, Proverbs. Proverbs 1. A long time ago uh, in the Bible study, uh, Tuesday morning Bible study, we went through some of the first uh, uh, chapters of Proverbs and, or through the whole, but what really struck with me and stuck with me all these years ago is uh, in verse 8 it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful uh, as a wreath on your head, ornaments about your neck. Here's the verse that that I think of. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol. The point is, every sin is a choice. Every sin is a choice. So he says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Um, Deliberate sin is something that's born in us. 
And the cleansing work of Christ is the only, uh, the only remedy for that. Um, thirdly, it tells us, the parable does, uh, as much to tell us about Jesus. It tells us about the claim of Jesus. Jesus clearly distinguishes himself from the Old Testament prophets. They were messengers from God and deserved honor and acknowledgement as such. But they were servants. He is the son. He makes the bold claim of sonship and equality with God the Father. If you read the first few verses of, of the book of John, you see that claim uh, clearly presented. And then there's those seven I am statements in, in the book of John. I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of salvation, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. All of those I am statements are claims of deity. And so this parable tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And it tells us about the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, Allow me to quote one last time from Barclay about this section. And he says, it makes it clear that Jesus knew what lay ahead. In the parable, the hands of the wicked man killed the son. Jesus was never in any doubt of what lay ahead. He did not die because he was compelled to die. He went willingly and open-eyed to death. End quote. Uh, a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, it says this, And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Jesus had no doubt what was going to happen when he walked into Jerusalem. Um, and he told his disciples ahead of time, they just, they just didn't quite understand it. But uh, the rejection and killing of the son brought condemnation and judgment on, on the nation of Israel. That's all we're going to have time for today. But... There's so much in this parable that uh, we, can, we can learn from and, and, uh, and pay attention to. What I'd like to do next week, Lord willing, is uh, look at the, uh, the next parable as well, the parable of the marriage feast. Uh, we recently had a chance in the Tuesday morning study to go through this, and it was a very, very fun conversation uh, amongst the guys that were there. And uh, I'm, I'm trusting that... Uh, We'll have a chance to look at that again next week. But uh, I just want to thank you for your participation and uh, looking forward to next week. Let me just uh, close in prayer. Father God, we, uh, we just caught a glimpse of, uh, uh, of the history of, of Israel um, and their responsibility, which they advocated. Uh, Father, you have established your church during this age to carry out the mission of proclaiming the gospel to the entire world. Someday we know you will make all those promises that you made to Israel come back and be fulfilled. But for now, uh, you have chosen to use your church to uh, spread the message of the gospel. 
Father, we pray that we'd be faithful, that we would uh, share that in, um, in honesty, share it with uh, a desire to um, bring in the, uh, the fruit that you desire. Lord, we know that you produce the fruit in, in an individual life. We get a chance to plant the seeds, water, or perhaps even harvest. Father, we pray a blessing on us as we go out this week, and uh, we look forward to uh, what you have for us during this Christmas season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.